0: Avoidant folks are not avoiding attachment. They're avoiding burdening their partners with emotional tenderness and need. They learned early on, I'm too much. Nobody can handle this. It gets worse when I say I'm hurting or I'm scared. All that is broken in relationship heals in relationship.
1: On this podcast, we often talk about the importance of looking back to your childhood to help you understand better the way that you behave in relationships and how you interact with life. And so this idea of attachment can really be traced back to your history.
2: Yeah, so we get to interview Eli Harwood today. She is the attachment nerd. That's what she's known as on social media. She's also the author of a book called Securely Attached. She's a licensed professional counselor and really breaks down attachment theory into layman's terms that we can all understand. And it's really intriguing. You get to learn which of the four attachment styles are you based on your childhood and what does that mean for your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, It's a fascinating interview.
1: Yeah. The whole time it was just so interesting. And I think you're going to have a great time listening to this and trying to place yourself in what is my attachment style Mm -hmm. and maybe cause you to look back a little bit and give you insight in your marriage and in how you interact with life. So buckle in. This is a fun interview.
2: Welcome Eli Hardwood to the podcast. We're so thankful that you're with us today.
0: Welcome. Thank you, I'm looking forward to chatting with you all.
2: Yes, you are the attachment nerd. And so today we're talking all about attachment, what it is, why it matters. So let's start with talking about the the theory of attachment. Um, We won't get too textbooky for those who are listening and are like, oh no, this is gonna be too academic. Um,
1: Above my, my head.
2: Yeah, but talk to us a little bit about just the theory of attachment in layman's terms.
0: Great. Well, so about the 1960s, there's this dude, his name was John Bowlby, and he was trying to understand the process of human development. And he was watching it and he was paying attention and he was thinking, this is very relational. And he was noticing that when a child had a certain type of relationship with their early caregiver, who was usually a mother uh that they turned out a certain way and when it was a different certain way that they turned out a different certain sort Mm. of way so that sort of sparked the beginning of the attachment science the research process of looking at like why do human beings develop relationally how does that impact us? How do the various experiences impact us? And they started studying. And I won't get into all the the nitty gritty. Like I do, truly nerd out on the nitty gritty. <laughs> tell you about a lot of different studies and what they mean and their implications and how they led to different other studies and all of that stuff. Yes. So
1: I appreciate that. So if, if you want to like kind of dip your toes in, could
0: sure. nerd, nerd out I'll a little do. bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say the most important study in attach in all of attachment research, in my opinion, was a study called the Strange Situation. And And what the researchers did, a woman named Mary Ainsworth did, was she created an experiment that would showcase the different categories of attachment that children experience based on their caregiver's behavior with Mm. them. And so she took them into a room and she put a stranger in the room and she has the child and the parent walk into the room and they kind of watch. We observe the researchers, we observe what's happening, and then they remove the parent from the room and they leave the child with a stranger for no longer than three minutes. That's not very long. What and was a
1: stranger have... doing the whole time?
0: Like they're safe. They're just like, really honestly, that they, when they pick their strangers, they pick very neutral, but kind people who, okay. you yeah. know, kind of they're, they obviously don't have a threatening presence, but they're strange. They're new. Yeah. Um, so then once the mother leaves the room and I'm going to say mother, this research has been done on fathers, on mm-hmm uh, foster parents on grandparents. And it shows the same results because it's testing relationships. So it's looking at what's the quality of the relationship between this Mm. child and this caregiver. So, and the, Oh, and the kids are 12 to 18 months. That's really important because you really can't do this experiment at other developmental stages. So they're 12 to 18 months old. So the mother leaves, we watch what happens with the baby. What does the baby do? And then the mother returns and there's a line of tape on the floor and she stands behind that line and we watch. What's the baby doing in response to the mother's return? Mm. Then we try and up the ante a little more. We let the two of them play, they have a reunion. We call that the reunion episode. And then we have the mother leave a second time. And this time there's no one in the room. So this child's in a strange room. They've already been left there once with a stranger and now they're being left entirely alone. And we're watching, what's that child doing? And then same thing, there's a return, a reunion. What does the child do in response to the mother's presence? in that room Mm -hmm. and it's through this research that we were able to establish that there are three primary patterns that children showcase in attachment although there's a fourth category that we would say is not a pattern it lacks Mm -hmm. patterns disorganized but so these three primary patterns now then there's other researchers who took this research and did longitudinal studies and applied other pieces, like there's the adult attachment interview, there's the Minnesota study of um, risk, and, oh shoot, I always forget the second word, adaption. adaption. Okay. Um, and so those studies went, okay, so if this is the dynamic between the caregiver and this baby, What does that mean for the lifelong trajectory of this child? Mm. And we have learned all sorts of things. So what happens in childhood, it doesn't stay in childhood. It gets wired into our nervous system. It gets wired into our belief systems and Mm. it gets wired into the way we relate to others. And all of that affects our cardiovascular health, our neurological health. It has massive implications. So... I'm going to tell you just a little bit about what those categories are. Yeah. Yes. And then I'll help us launch into kind of adulthood.
2: Yeah. So uh, share the f- the four categories, or three plus the one that was not a pattern.
0: So I'm going to share secure first okay. because it's the one that we're all aiming for. And for those of your listeners who are parents, on top of being young and married, this is what this is our goal. Okay. Time, goals. Okay. <laughs> so the secure child is upset when their mother leaves the room. Because they prefer their mother to some random person, that's mm-hmm. a sign of a strong, solid attachment with that their makes mother. Makes sense, yeah. And they are they are expressing it because they they anticipate that if I express my upset, someone will respond to me. Mm-hmm. That's what they learned. Then, when the mother returns, they actively seek proximity to her, and then they maintain proximity for as long as it takes to calm down. And these kids calm down within three minutes. So it's not very long. Um, The way I like to describe this strategy is this kid is reach and receive. So when they feel distress, they reach for their caregiver and they receive that soothing. Hmm. That's a secure pattern. Mm -hmm. And think about this in marriage, right? So I'm upset. What do I do? Hmm. Do I reach for my person? Do I let them know I'm upset and struggling? And then when they offer me empathy or care, do I receive it? Mm -hmm. that's the goal in adulthood as well as in childhood. So that's your secure baby. Then we have what are called our ambivalent resistant babies. And, And these other, I'm going to describe two other babies. So we've got our secure baby. And then we have these two other babies that are patterned. These are both labeled anxious. And this is confusing because there's another set of data that some social psychologists have done on attachment in adulthood that actually doesn't correlate with this data. Gotcha. And I think this is the more reliable data. But so sometimes you'll hear people like Stan Tatt can he relies a yeah. little bit more on that data and he'll say like, there's the anxious type and the avoidant. Okay. Well, in the developmental data, we're like, oh, the avoidant child is anxious. Yeah. Mm. Oh, is the resistant child? They're both anxious. And I find that really important because I think that avoidant folks in marriages often get labeled as having less desire or caring less about closeness. And I don't think that's true. Uh, and that's so that's bad. why I push really hard on that. Yeah. So this anxious, ambivalent, resistant child, <laughs> when yeah. the caregiver leaves, they're upset. But actually one interesting thing is when the caregiver is still in the room before they're left with a the stranger, they aren't mm. set. They don't mm. seem at all. And then when the caregiver leaves, they're very upset. And when the caregiver returns, they make some attempt to seek proximity and then they protest it. So the child might run towards the caregiver and then make a U-turn mm. Mm. or run to the caregiver and the caregiver picks them up and then the child pushes against their chest and looks back. Mm. They don't melt onto the caregiver or oh. the caregiver takes them and brings them a toy and they bat the toy away. They have learned that the best way to keep their caregiver close is to be dysregulated. Mm. And they they can't predict Whether or not this caregiver is going to be available to them. So, that first subset of kids, of secure kids, Mm. their caregivers were reliably available, warm, and attuned. Mm. And so they knew that. They knew that. This is what I can anticipate. So, I'm upset. I know my caregiver is going to notice, is going to care, and is Mm going to be calm. They're going to add to my calmness, not to my dysregulation. Mm. The second group of kids, their caregivers are unpredictable. I don't know if I'm what I'm gonna get. Some days they might actually be warm and responsive, but other days they're not. And I don't know how to tell what's what. Mm. So I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And as my adaptation, I am going to protest their attempts to soothe me in order to keep them focused on me. Mm. Out in marriage, yeah. this looks like I am upset at my partner, I'm mad at them, they respond, but nothing they say or do feels right to me. And I don't want to let my guard down and let them soothe me. Something in me says that's a bad idea. Mm. And That creates a whole dynamic, which we can talk about more at length. This is good. Yes. Yeah. So third um, category are the avoidant children, anxious avoidant. And these little people, do not look upset on the outside the entire process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So they look calm. And when non-trained folks are asked to look through these, these videos, they tend to think this is the secure child. Mm. Because this child doesn't express emotions. So it's like, oh, well, that child's secure, but it's developmentally inappropriate for a 12 to 18-month-old to not express distress in a strange situation. Mm. Good. So when the mother leaves, the child does not say anything, show any anything. And when the child returns or when the mother returns, the child does not seek out the parent. And the parent might come over and sit next to them and play with them, but their, their way of coping is avoid and distract. So mm-hmm. I'm distressed. And we know these children still experience distress. We've done urine testing and temperature testing that they have the same stress response as the anxious resistant child. So that okay. same response but they don't show it externally. Mm. So these little bugs have learned from a very young age, there is no reason to signal my distress because I won't get what I need from my Mm. Whew. Sad. Yeah,
2: and already by 12 to 18 months, so something has occurred or some things have occurred in those first 12 months that have caused them to already make this conclusion.
0: Yes, and these parents, we know this from the linking data, these parents um, are characteristically unable to respond effectively. So sometimes they lack the ability to notice feelings in their child. They just may be are they lack emotional attunement. So they don't notice the child's upset, or they ignore it because they have a belief system that says if my child's upset, I'm supposed to ignore it. So they learn not to be like that. Mm-hmm. Or they are themselves so emotionally dysregulated that their responses to their child are intrusive. So the child is upset and the parents like. <gasps> are you okay? Are you okay? And the child's like, I'm I'm not showing mom that I'm upset because, yeah, because that's dangerous. I get more dysregulated yeah. as a result of her knowing that. So yeah. I'm going to learn to have a blank face. I'm going to learn, and I'm going to learn to ignore what I'm feeling. Mm. And then the last category of kids is the heartbreak, most heartbreaking of all, which these are the kids whose parents are um, extremely abusive, extremely mentally ill or extremely neglectful. Ah. Um, Addicted, also extreme addiction. Okay. So they um our attachment system is designed to drive us towards caring people when we are in danger or in distress or feeling tender. Okay. Mm-hmm. These kids have no one to go to when that's happening because their caregivers are a source of distress. They are a source of danger. They are a yeah. source of increased tenderness. Mm. So if there's a saber-toothed tiger in the woods and my attachment drive says, fine, mom, but mom is a grizzly bear, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit screwed. Yeah. And so what happens to the attachment system is that it can't develop a coping pattern. So the secure children are coping by reaching and receiving. The ambivalent, resistant children are coping by reaching and protesting. And the avoidant children are coping by avoiding and distracting these disorganized children have no way to cope yeah. so they end up in a far more reactive response their body goes into a threat state in response to any kind of threat and we i would say that their two primary ways of responding then are shutting down disassociation or blowing up reactively. and so that that in a trajectory becomes really complicated because You know, if you think of PTSD in terms of the way we tend to think of it with like soldiers and military, you know, we understand that, hey, someone who was in Afghanistan and encountered a lot of IEDs might have like a traumatic reaction in a context where a car backfires, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. We can understand that link. Well, for these little people, close relationships are their Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So when they enter into close friendships, romantic relationships, they are constantly hearing cars backfire and they, right. their body is saying you're in danger. There's a risk. Mm. Yeah. Wow.
1: Ooh. Do they do both, uh, walling up and. Explosion? Shutting down. Yeah. Dep- like
0: depends on the kid. Mm.
1: Okay. So sometimes no. they can only exhibit the shutdown.
0: Totally. Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that we can't fully answer, which I think are probably things that we will over time answer genetically. Like, I Mm. think, you know, when you have your children, it's very obvious that they come out of the womb with, with a core wiring, like they, they're, they're, they are who they are. Yeah. it is our relationship to them that's going to affect how they feel about who they are, how they mm-hmm. cope with who they are. Mm-hmm. But that's why some people are born into abusive households and never go on to continue that abuse, and other people do. I yeah. think a right. lot of that has to do with your temperament and your nature, and, Absolutely. and what feels adaptive and normal for you right. is different, and why two people can grow Maybe. up in the same household and have very different reactions to that environment. True. Yeah. Wow.
2: So then, attachment would you'd consider it, it's nature and nurture?
0: Um, Attachment is nurture. Okay. How you cope is nature. Ah, okay. (laughs) Gotcha. So your actual attachment pattern is developed in relationship to your caregivers. Okay. It is a caregiver-driven quality. And what's great about it not being nature and just being nurture is that it can be healed. Gotcha. We really should say there are four categories of childhood attachment and five in adulthood, because in adulthood, we have what's called earned secure and that is, I have processed my past pain. I have worked through its um, impact on my nervous system. I've learned secure patterns. And I now relate to people in a secure way, even though that's not how I started. Uh, that's Which really cool. It me. That's ah,
2: me. Tell us your story of yeah, recognizing the need for healing and then going through that process of becoming an earned secure attachment <laughs> person.
0: Yes. So I grew up in a family that I would say, like, if you were to decorate our Christmas tree with history, okay. the ornaments would be addiction, mental illness, mm. domestic violence, sexual abuse. Oh, wow, <laughs> it's a really well decorated tree. Mm. Um, and so when I came into the world, um, neither my mom nor nor my dad was okay. They just weren't okay. Mm. My dad's an active addiction. My mom was an active mental illness and PTSD. And so my childhood experience was my mom doing everything she could to do better with us than her parents did, but not having had the healing experiences in her own life to be able to create a fully secure environment for us. Mm -hmm. So she was, she was breaking cycles. She was doing as good as she could. Um, And my dad, I would say, wasn't as intentional in that. He wasn't scary and abusive. But um, he, he wasn't able to contribute to the healing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was an anxious, resistant, ambivalent kid. Okay. Because my mom sometimes could access that space of warmth and regulation and attunement. So, at some... so
1: uh, replay that. So what would you do in response to um, your caregivers? Like how would you react? Then? If you were
2: in that 12 to 18 month yeah.
0: uh, experience. I would have been fixated and preoccupied with what my mom was doing and wanting her close. And then when she got close, I would have been angry at her.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Which is what that
0: protest is because it's like, you left again. Why'd you Mm. leave again? Right. Versus the secure kids aren't angry at that caregiver because their experience isn't, that the caregiver leaves and comes back in, in the sense of availability to them. Mm. They still trust them. That's exactly the right way to say it. Okay.
1: So, how did this affect your relationships throughout yes. your your life?
0: So, one of the things that often happens for insecure resistant children is that we become so hyper-vigilant that we we really are very brilliant readers of people. So we can tell what other people are feeling and needing. And so we try to get our needs met by meeting the needs of others, by trying mm. to become what they want from us, to try and feel secure through, you know, essentially taking care. So mm-hmm. I took care of my mom. I took care of my brother. I didn't really take care of my dad because he was drinking. So he wasn't really like signaling distress, uh, but I, okay. I became the caretaker for them. And then in my like close relationships, I would come off very confident and caring and astute, mm-hmm. but underneath it, I was just always like, am I good enough? Are you going to leave me? Is mm. this going to work out? Okay. Right? Anxious. Um, Yes, yeah. preoccupied is the word. So the other confusing thing about attachment is we use different verbiage when we describe childhood attachment versus adulthood. Okay. Okay. And ambivalent. Well, why do
1: they do that? Just make it easy for everybody, please. <laughs> you
0: know, I, I'll tell you why. there's a lot of ego in research. And so when people are, you know doing their study and their thing, there's a there's a desire to set themselves apart to be saying something different. Um, yeah. but I also think in, in some of this verbiage, it makes sense. So a resistant child turns into a preoccupied grown up. So if I'm in a romantic relationship, I feel preoccupied with that connection, hypervigilant with it. Okay. okay. Yep. Um, and then the avoidant child becomes a dismissive adult. So they're dismissing what I feel, what you feel. That's the coping pattern. Okay. Mm. Yeah. A disorganized child becomes an unresolved adult. Because there's something so deeply unresolved that it continues to play out in the moment. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So good. So when did you recognize that you had this- um... So you're
1: in your relationship.
0: Yeah. Probably. Like
2: in your adulthood. How, how did you recognize okay. your pattern?
0: So it was in early college. I mean, I knew that something was off. I just didn't know what to do with it. Like, And I remember, I mean, I'm a really observant person. So I remember like watching other people, even in high school, and they would like be dating. But it, like- it wasn't driving them crazy it was like mm. oh they're not constantly worried about this and fixated on it mm-hmm. or like friends who just like didn't weren't interested in dating i was like what is this there's something else here like there's a different security here that i don't have so it was in college that i went and saw a therapist for the first time and she introduced me to attachment theory and i just remember sitting there going Mm, yeah this makes sense and and when you look back in my lineage and you understand all of the way my parents were treated by their parents like oh okay this makes sense Mm -hmm. um and what wasn't available at the time was a lot of resources on it like what was available were really obtuse research books and articles Mm and so I was like, I guess I have to go to grad school. <laughs> so I did. And it was through that process that I learned more and dive deeper. And, and then I met my husband, well, actually before that, but we we got together kind of towards the end of my graduate program. Mm-hmm. And I would say that was the next experience of healing. So it was okay. healing to understand my past and to have like a therapist that can help me process some of it. But then right. it was healing when I was with someone who was doing the same thing at the same time. So he grew up with an avoidant pattern and we do tend to choose people with different patterns than we have. There's something adaptive about it. Like I know how to like stay on an issue and work it out till it's done. And he knows how to like, give something a little bit of time and see if it works itself out. Like there's, uh-huh. there's skill sets <laughs> in both of our <laughs> strategies. Yeah. And I is used to there
2: research it. that shows that, that we actually do tend to choose someone that's a different attachment style than our own?
0: Yeah. There's not fabulous research. Okay. I would, that's been my clinical experience. Okay. My clinical experience is that people come in and that avoidance style and that resistance style are very drawn to each other. Got it. Uh, um, the, when we think about those styles, I kind of do this animal thing where I'm like, okay, so the secure style is the koala. They find someone secure, they hold on and they relax for the ride and it feels good. The resistant style is the honey badger. They're like, just can't get enough honey. Like, I, do you love me now? Do you love me now? Do you still love me? Are <laughs> you love me? <laughs> okay. um, Going after uh, it. Right, and the avoidance style is the turtle. It's like something feels scary and uncomfortable. Oh. So I'll be in my shell until it's over. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. so yeah. Um, and I want to talk about that for a minute because so avoidant folks are not avoiding attachment. They're avoiding burdening their partners with emotional tenderness and need. So they learned early on, I'm too much. Nobody can handle this. It gets worse when I say I'm hurting or I'm scared. Mm. Partners often feel rejected by that. Like, why wouldn't you tell me that? Why wouldn't you let me in? Well, because... Somewhere deep inside, they internalize that that's the loving thing to do. If I love you, I shield you from my Mm needs.
1: So this sounds like a lot of guys. Is that more common in men?
0: Yes. And there's a reason for that. We have data that says that out of the uterus, baby boys are given less tenderness and are held less than baby girls. Wow. Man, that's jacked up. (laughs) That's right. But and that, but that's a part of our belief systems. I mean, we have belief systems that say, you know, this is what it means to be this particular set of chromosomes. This is what it means yep. to be a particular set of chromosomes. And we project that even upon... Huh, yeah. kids. And, and there's other research that says that by the age of five, boys have learned and believe the term, boys don't cry. <sighs> okay. So sad. By age five... Yeah, and then they and then couples come into marriage therapy, and I spend years trying to help these men find their feelings. They can (laughs) actually connect because the bond we experience in relationships is emotional bonding, emotional. And if you cannot be vulnerable, if you cannot have needs, because you got to like you know be the provider and be Mm -hmm. tough and you know be the strong one, well. You can't feel that rich sense of security in a relationship. You have to go mm. through avoidance. So yes, way more men wow. experience, and I think that's a result of how we parent boys.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's so telling, and I think a lot of guys can reflect on that. Is that a lot of guys don't know how to uh, properly express their emotions, or they don't feel like they can, and well, they... Or,
0: that, or that it's dangerous too. Yes. like if I do, I will be humiliated. Someone yes. will mock me. Yep someone mm-hmm. you know it's it's it, there's like varying degrees of feeling dropped in an emotional moment like it hurts if someone doesn't notice it hurts if someone tells you it's not that big of a deal and dismisses you but it is excruciating if someone mocks you or humiliates you mm. and that happens a lot with little boys it mm. does and well, not necessarily like, just oh, abusive kind of girl right, right. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah. And I think the parents who are doing that and the the cultures that are doing that aren't doing that because they want to hurt boys. Right. They're doing that because they think that's the best way to protect boys. If I toughen right. you up, yep, you'll handle a violent culture better in the long.
1: Yeah. You won't be soft. You won't be seen as soft. You, yes. You'll be able to conquer and.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. I mean, which is dominance-based relating, and dominance-based relating is trauma relating. Mm. Because human beings are not designed to be dominant with the people we are related to. We are designed to have a dominance response in the event of threat or emergency or enemy, yeah. but not in response to intimacy. Yeah. And this is a pervasive problem in our intimate relationships. Domestic violence, 4 million women a year are assaulted by their partner in the U S. Mm. It's not wow. a small disability. Why yeah. is that? Well, because we're telling boys, your job is to be tough and in control and in charge, mm-hmm. and then put them into an intimate relationship where all of those feelings of powerlessness get stirred up. Yeah, yeah, and they don't have any other coping skill but to violate their partner as a way to gain or regain their sense of control.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow, oh, that is deep. We could do a whole episode just on that. Totally. And I mean, especially in um, the the culture that surrounds church circles. Yes,
0: yeah. I have, I have, um, I have respect and, and awareness for the work that John Eldridge and Stacey Eldridge were doing, um, thousands. And I have a beef with it Uh because I think it really set up in in an even deeper way. Like, yes, God's design is for men to be wild and women to be rescued. Uh, And I don't think (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Right. I think, that, I think that God's design is for human beings to be connected yeah. and that connection is um, a safe experience. Right. Yeah.
1: I, I think he yeah. spoke so well to what men want to see themselves as mm-hmm. of like, I want to see myself as powerful. I want to see myself as a protector that can rescue because yeah. that means that I have agency and I have mm-hmm. ability and strength yeah. and all those yeah. things. Right. <laughs> But it does, um, in some ways, I think, downplay this the the necessity, though, of being tender.
0: Yeah. Well, and most women are like, "Dude, I need you to connect. Yes. Me. Yeah. Hear me, see me, feel me, and be present." Um, I would say, like, the most wild terrain in human life mm. is the human heart. And that it takes far more courage for a man to sit and tolerate his emotions than it does for him to put on his Mr. Fix-It belt. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, but that's so hard for, I mean, I've sat with hundreds of men through sessions and and through, you know, watching them express for the first time and and fight back emotions. That is a hard, such a hard lesson for men to get that you... Are stronger when you are yeah. serving in this way or opening Connecting, up.
2: Connecting, being vulnerable. Right.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, well, yeah. how can they see that? Like, how can you help a man see there is strength in that? There's not strength in this like steel <laughs> exterior yeah. that has no flaw. That's Great. not strength.
0: Yeah. Well, that all that is broken in relationship heals in relationship. I believe that. And I think that that experience of you as a therapist m- mirroring back, staying calm, you know, not giving them like an awkward face mm-hmm. when they start crying and, and saying things like speaking truth in that moment, like that took some balls, man.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're,
0: you're having the dialogue in which in a way that honors how that person views their masculinity. Yes. Mm-hmm. I also think that this is part of my beef with the, the women to be rescued thing is that I see women being incredible leaderships in the, in this work, like yeah. taking on incredible leadership in this work that yes. it is often somebody's partner, somebody's wife, who is, is saying in that moment, like this, this is the thing that makes me respect you. This is the thing mm. that feels like. mm. um, But that means that women have to have done their own work. On their own stuff and not be looking to be rescued right right and so So
1: what would the need to be rescued attachment style be then
0: uh probably resistant ambivalent okay (laughs) it's like i i feel anxious fix me save me tell me i'm lovable be the the big spoon all the time let me be the little spoon Yeah, that's why those two
2: attachment styles really find each other all the time we were just talking yesterday with um the author of i hate you don't leave me on borderline. And he he was talking about how borderlines tend to find narcissistic people to partner up with. and, And it's kind of this same concept you're describing of these two attachment styles.
0: I have a theory that that's because when something like this that's so primal is unresolved, there's just a human instinct to try to resolve it somewhere. And so when we encounter someone who reminds us of that early experience even if it's painful it's familiar and there's some like hopeful thing in that that's like maybe this is the place I heal and I do see that happen all the time yeah Mm -hmm. it's like but but the equation has to be there where both people are willing and ready to do the work it takes to heal it yes so
1: what does that look like and how can people identify these different patterns in themselves?
2: And maybe going back to
0: your story too. Yeah, yeah in that. we haven't. Ah. Yeah, yeah, Totally. So, I mean, I would say if you're a, if you're a honey badger, you're going to notice that you really, once you start getting close to someone, there's like this really strong anxiety that creeps up in your head that keeps you on edge, on guard. What could you do in that moment? Well, okay, this is happening. I'm I'm starting to enter some self-worth stuff. How can I ground myself? What are the things I can do? Who are the other relationships that I can rely on mm-hmm. um, so that I can regulate myself and not put all of my sense of self-worth into this dynamic, into this relationship? Mm. Okay. Um, a fun little thing, I write about this in my book that I tell folks in this to do is to write a honey journal like every day that, that your partner says, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Like write it down. Start to let your brain absorb. And, and instead of asking them to repeat themselves, go back to that journal and you do the work to like really absorb, like, this is what they said. Mm -hmm. I love that. Believe this. I can let this in. That's a good Um, homework assignment. I like that. Yeah. And you know, people will sometimes say like, but what if they aren't going to love me well? What if they are going to cheat on me? What if they are? I'm like, that's on that. That's there. That's for them to wrestle with. Like, and if yeah. you when you find that out, maybe you have a plan for that. Like if I ever find out they do X, Y, or Z, this is my plan. Sure. Mm. Yeah. But like you don't need to spend time second guessing, third guessing, fourth guessing, because if they're gonna hide it, they're gonna hide it well. <laughs> and yeah, if you need to find out, you're gonna find out. Yeah. Um mm-hmm.
1: I, 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 it seems like though a lot of these people that are anxious. Mm -hmm. sort of discount the positive and they're actually not keeping accurate count of just how much this person loves them.
0: They don't know how. Mm -hmm. So being soothed is unfamiliar. So that's the other thing I would say, have sort of that, like, um, awakening moment within yourself where you go, I don't know how to be soothed. Mm -hmm. I know how to reach. I know how to say what I want and need. I do not know how to receive it when it comes back. Mm. Um, I'm going to actively work on that.
1: Yeah, that is... Okay, so I have a quick question on that. Mm-hmm. For honey badgers that are men that mm-hmm. look for that soothing in sex, mm-hmm. what yeah. would you have to say for them? Because they're they're actively, oh, always like going for that that soothing that is only found in sex while the wife is like, hey, I don't feel like emotionally connected to you, so...
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So, I mean, now we can have a whole other podcast on sex and attachment. But if... If you are only able to get your sense of connection met through sex, it's time for you to mature and learn how to find connection in other ways. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to experience connection and security without sex. And if you continue to fixate on sex as the only way to experience that, your partner will eventually feel less attracted to you. You're going to kill the desire between you two because it won't feel consensual for them. Mm -hmm. It will feel pressured. Mm -hmm. And that pressure will now lead them to feeling kind of an ick when you reach mm. sexually. And so like if you like sex, don't overdo it, right? Like if you like sex, don't find your only security in that. Like think through, okay, where did why did I learn that this is my my value? Mm. Right? where did, where did that message come from? And and what does my partner need in order to feel interested in sex? Right? right? So
1: good. And it's like the, Yeah, the yeah. only way that they get get that soothing would be that oxytocin dump after yep. orgasm, which is like, yep. okay, wait, hold on. That's yep. yes, that's wonderful. However, if that's the only place you're getting that security,
0: right? There's your partner something is missing. Slowly getting more and more alienated from you, I promise. Yeah. Mm. And then that resentment builds and then you feel rejected. I, I would say also don't don't see sex as the the way you can assess whether or not your partner loves you, cares about you, has a desire for you. Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots of complexity around sex and desire and how different people work at different stages of relationship. Mm. I work with a lot of families where there's a recent baby or multiple baby or small children. Like the experience, especially for the birthing parent is very different because they might have breastfed and they're being touched all the time and they're touched out. And then their partner's like, you want to get jiggy? And they're Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) I want to be in an isolation room. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> that is the only thing I can think of desire-wise.
1: Padded walls.
0: <laughs> right. And like that's not rejection. That's not, hey, I don't want you. That's right. My nervous system and my sensory system is overloaded. Yeah. So yeah. I'm gonna need something else between mommy, mommy, mommy and let's get jiggy. Yeah. yeah. So like But my needs so mine. big,
1: I I can't, I can you just
0: <laughs> Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that's where I say maturing. There's maturing to be able to say, oh, there's my need and your need. And if my if the thing that I'm meeting my need through involves your effort, I need to really consider are there other ways for me to meet that need that honor where you are? Yeah, that's
1: so good. So did you give a uh, an animal for the disorganized?
0: Oh, I think of it as a baby dragon. Like, Mm -hmm. it's very obvious they've been hurt and you kind of feel like, oh, and then you step towards them to comfort them and they burn you. Mm. I I personally believe all personality disorders are a result of disorganized attachment experiences. We don't have research that's, that validates what I'm saying on that, but I okay. believe that with my whole heart from my clinical experience. Yeah. I spent 20 years in this and I almost 20 years. I'm a rounder upper. Um, that's good. Yeah. We,
1: I, I, I agree.
2: Maybe you need to do some research yeah. on that
0: <laughs> in my free time.
1: Come on. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's a, that's a really good hypothesis. Yeah.
1: It's, it's just funny. It's so hard to get through to people yes. how, like how their childhood experiences actually do affect them when they're 40. Yes. They're like, no, no, it doesn't. You know, like, or I'm, I'm so past that And as all of their relationships are burning or they have no relationships or they're driving their spouse crazy because they're chasing them around like a honey badger.
0: <laughs> right. Yep. Right. And there's a fixation. You know, one of, the, one of the dilemmas we have is how we're wired biologically, is our, the way our brain stores memory. So, if I go through a lot of this insecurity in my childhood, a lot of where that got cultivated is pre verbal. So, zero to three, yeah. those experiences are the ones that are most influential on our attachment pattern, but we nice. don't explicitly remember them. So, it's a lot harder to just go, wait a minute, it's from that? Like, I don't even know what happened. I'd much rather think it's because my wife's rejecting me or because my husband is, you know, wants too much from me and and Mm. thinks he's too emotional or like, no, actually, there's a, you have a discomfort around what you feel and what other people feel and how to respond and how to receive that emanates far earlier. And we may not have all of those explicit memories, but we can put the puzzle together, right? Like we can put pieces together.
2: Mm. Wow. So they might have memories from childhood that were still formative but mm-hmm. what they don't realize is that there were more um there were more influential circumstances mm-hmm. that are contributing to what's going on now in adulthood that they don't even remember.
0: Yeah. Yes. And the things they do remember are still going to be in line with what those early years were unless their parent made a U-turn, which some parents do. My mom did. My mom made a U-turn when I was 9 years old and that okay. made all the
2: Okay, talk um, about the U-turn. Because okay. because a lot of people listening now are like, whoa, like my child X, Y, Z about these attachment and I don't want that in
0: them.
1: Or yes. I see this in myself and I have no idea. Sure. Yeah, like how do they do make it. that
0: U-turn yes. Yes. as a parent? So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. It's going to sound complex and then don't worry, I'll, I will give you some, like, this is how you actually do it. But, okay. um, what my mom did was at nine years old, when I was nine years old, she acknowledged within herself that she was struggling with PTSD and depression. Okay. And she was struggling so significantly that she was suicidal. And -hmm. so she checks herself into a hospital Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and I can't imagine how hard that choice was because we didn't want her to go. Yeah. There was Mm -hmm. nothing. I remember it was awful. I remember like clinging to her, like telling her not to go. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. that that was a courageous decision, but she she stood by herself and said, I'm not okay. I need help. And mm-hmm. she also from there just blasted off. She was like, oh, this is a thing I have. It's real. It's not my fault. I don't know. She went in and out of it's not my fault, but okay. but I can get help. She went on medication. She stayed in therapy. Um, she went on to get her master's in counseling. Oh. Wow. Yeah. She just was like, there's a way out and I'm going to figure out how to, how to get there. And Mm -hmm. so she was that first generation cycle breaker. And even though she continued to have struggle and it took a long time and, and she still struggles some days, um, because she has a tremendous load of trauma. She doesn't, you know, I have a, I have a lighter load of trauma than she Mm -hmm. does Mm -hmm. Result of her choices. Um, but it put all of us into therapy. It, it began a dialogue in her home about feelings. She dug into her family history. She asked questions with her family and cousins and aunts and uncles and shared those pieces with us. Wow, um, You That's know, amazing. so we kind of have an idea of what's behind everything. Mm. Um,
2: wow. So people, yeah. you can be a cycle breaker. I mean, Absolutely. even if you're not to the extent that Eli's mom was where, you know, She was suicidal and needed to go to a hospital in order to do the U-turn. What are some other ways that you can tell folks who are listening, here's how you can be a cycle breaker and do a U-turn?
0: So it happens through reflection, storytelling, and grief. Hmm. We have to look back in order to know where we are on the map so that we can figure out where we want to go. We have to do that in the presence of caring others who help us. It's like, you know, if the tree falls in the wood and no one's there to see it, does the tree really fall? And I would say with healing, it's the same way. Like if I'm processing my childhood trauma, like I need a witness, at least one. This is why why our field exists. This is why we have therapists in the world. Um, And then I have to process those stories and those reflections with emotion. Because I need them to integrate in my brain. So if I talk about the hard stuff, but it's just a wall of words and I don't actually melt down, it doesn't integrate. So mm. I might have gotten some insights, but my nervous system is still hijacked by all of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. That's like the part of am always like, <laughs> <laughs> you are going to have to cry. You are going to yeah. have to feel the feels. It is going to be uncomfortable. But you hear that guys? Yeah. Yeah. But it won't be as uncomfortable as what you went through initially. So you already That's went good. through the hardest part. You went through the hardest part. You were awash in that trauma, insecurity, absence of connection, whatever it was. Now, as you heal it, it's not washing over you like it was in the experience. It's coming out of you. And yes, mm-hmm. it's going to be a little painful, but it's not like when you were a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Other, other, really- reasons, like other supports. Yeah. yeah. Have you two had this experience in your
2: careers? Say that again. Have we what?
0: Have you seen this? Like when I'm talking about this validates what the work oh, you do. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely. I, I tell people you have to feel to heal. Yes. It's it's absolutely necessary. We're we're so we're so good at pushing things away and not looking, especially in the in this digital age. Yes. It's so easy to pick up a phone and not feel, or turn something on and not feel or
0: lots of toys for distraction. Oh right. so
1: many. Like yeah. and we're constantly looking for pleasure. And not mm-hmm. looking for excellence, and yeah. and that's in ourselves. So yeah. the only way, a lot of times, is to go back and look at these areas with compassion. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. I absolutely love what you're saying. This is so, so helpful.
2: Yeah. So, so you've talked about moms' U-turn. And Uh then you talked about how in relationship with your husband is when you started to heal personally. Um, can you give any more detail for like how that took place between you and your husband?
0: Yeah. Um, well, okay. So we did it for about a year and like in that time period, we were definitely in that dynamic and I was doing my best to manage my badgering. And so I had a group of girlfriends who I would like call up and be like, um, Trevor hasn't called today yet. And I'm having one of those moments. And they'd be like, um, remember last night when he blah, 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 and said this and this and I'd be like, okay, so you think it's still true? <laughs> and I'd be like, yes, we do. Uh-huh. Um, so I was actively making an effort to take responsibility over my insecurity. My insecurity didn't belong to him or the relationship that belonged to me. Um, and he eventually started to do the same thing. So about a year in. I was saying, I love you to him. And he was like, not ready to say it yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, this is not, this is confusing. Cause I can feel that you love me, but why aren't you saying it? Okay. And so I said, Hey, either you do love me and we need to like go to therapy and figure out our stuff, our attachment stuff. Cause I already mm-hmm. knew it was, fun. or you don't love me and that's okay, but you need to let me go and find someone who does because mm-hmm. I'm, like that. and my sweethearted husband broke down crying. Oh. And he was like I don't know what's wrong with me and I was like well I do but let's go do this <laughs> <laughs> um, like read this book. <laughs> this is what it is. But so we went and found this incredible couples therapist. She was a character. She was an imperfect person like all therapists are. Right. She about herself too much. But <laughs> she really helped us connect how what was happening in the moment was tethered to what had happened in our childhoods. How we were not seeing each other clearly and fully as the result of the things we had gone through and we're trying to resolve. Mm -hmm. Um, And he put in the same amount of work that I put in and it was fun, and we loved it. And he was ready, as ready as someone can be in that moment. And I was as ready as someone can be in that moment. Um, So then we learned certain things. Like I learned when I was feeling anxious about something to say, Hey, um, I think my childhood stuff is active because this is the story I'm telling myself right now about, why where you are what's happening or whatever Mm -hmm. he learned how to say oh little eli poor little eli Mm -hmm. she's so scared like no i'm just feeling introverted because so what another correlation that was really important for us is that when my mom got depressed she disappeared emotionally so she would crawl into bed she would stop talking as much she would right she wasn't saying to us overtly at least when we were little I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, and whatever. So I, all I had was the data of withdrawing. Mm. Well, my husband's an introvert. He is a, needs the time alone. So he <laughs> can start to withdraw.
1: Yeah, you can't have your you time. Yeah, That makes me nervous.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I, that's exactly what it was. I was interpreting it through the lens of my nervous system. My nervous system was like, he's starting to go away. That means something's wrong. Mm. So I also handed over the authority of his be- interpretation of his behavior to him. What does it mean? And he yeah. could say, I just need a couple of days or I'm struggling, um, whatever it was. And then I then I would do what I needed to do to get through those moments, like go on a run, go talk to my friends, go do some creative, like watch a movie, whatever the thing is that I need to do to settle my system during that period of time. And over time, my nervous system learned something very different, which is, oh, he's okay. And he always comes back. And what's funny is that now we're pretty equally introverted interesting uh-huh so like I and I don't get activated by separation from him at all wow it's I'm trying to think of the last time that's even happened like it doesn't feel familiar anymore I can talk about it I can narrate it but it's like not in my body my in my body is I'm loved I'm seen I'm cared for I will be because you've
1: you've told that story to yourself for so long you've begun to believe it
0: and he's been responsive so when I have mm-hmm. needed him he's shown up Mm-hmm. So those times when I'm going through something hard, he's not like, well, I'm in the middle of a video game or something. He doesn't even play video games. So <laughs> <laughs> but he he shows up for those moments, you know, and then mm-hmm. I do my part to show up for him and understanding his needs. Cause when you, when you're in love with an introvert, you show up for them by letting them go have time alone. That's one of the ways you show up for them. Right. Oh, you know, it's confusing. Preach it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yes. I think, I don't know we've written a different story and now like my the story of my nervous system is like i belong yeah i am safe Mm -hmm. i get what i need Mm. i love
2: that that's a beautiful story that is really good and so like based in the research but personal to you yeah
0: such that's why i'm obsessed with attachment research that's why i'm I'm the attachment nerd I, i didn't be the attachment expert because i thought that's not I don't know. That's not the truth. I'm not like some, you know, super scientific person that like knows all of the everything. I'm, I'm someone that has nerded out on a lot of it Yeah, as I needed to. And because it saved my, I mean, not my life in the sense of life or death, but the fullness of my life. It it saved my whole life for sure.
1: But it's such a gift because we could all relate to your story in, in one way or another. And you've given us cool animals. To remember all of them by
0: so what, what which pieces for each of you are like, oh yeah, that resonates really strongly for me.
2: well, I have a whole list <laughs> <laughs> no i I loved um well, I think that that piece that what happens in relationships heals in relationships because mm-hmm. I think the the myth and you hear people say this is like, um, you know, I have to heal on my own before I'm ready to. Yeah. You yes. know, be with you, or connect with you, or heal with you, and yeah. and it is true that you need to work on your own stuff, but that can happen in relationship. But
0: it's, that, that's a misinterpretation of I need to take responsibility for my part. Yes, yes. but it's like, like trying
1: to get good at ping pong by yourself.
0: Right. <laughs> totally, that's such a good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> you might improve your serve, right? But you're not like, going the back yeah. and forth is not going to be any better, right? So like, good, yeah. And some people do need to improve their serve before they can start a relationship. I do think that happens at times, but predominantly it's about being with someone who is engaged at the same level of commitment and dedication as you are, who is as ready to heal and learn and grow and connect as Mm -hmm. you are. Yes,
1: absolutely. I love that. And I think that couples understanding the piece they play and their deficiencies Yes. And identifying their animal, their spirit animal. <laughs> um, I think that would really help them identify, oh, I'm doing, I, I, like you said, I'm being, uh, I forgot, activated right now. My story is being activated. Mm-hmm. I think that would be very helpful for couples to look at and say, and, and be able to communicate that. And use that, that language. Yeah. yeah. And know that, <laughs> oh, this is a thing. I, I love pointing patterns to people. Like, mm-hmm. that, this is what you do. This is the reality of you yeah.
0: and your mm-hmm. relationship
1: don't be surprised. It's going to happen next week. So absolutely.
0: Well, and when, and healing is not so much that these things don't happen anymore. It's that they happen way less frequently and for a less of a duration of time. Right. Yes. With higher
2: awareness and more ability to cope.
0: Yes, exactly. It's like, Oh, here's my last little tip for all of you. Okay. Okay. When you're in an adult relationship and you are feeling triggered or activated, If you feel powerless, if you feel terrified, if you feel small, you have likely accessed some of your childhood stuff. Mm. So another way for me to say that is I'm struggling with something with my partner. How old do I feel right now? Do I feel 41 or do I feel three? Do I feel nine? Do Mm. I feel 17? Like what present memory can I or, or what um, what memory is present here that's getting in the way of this actual present encounter and mm. how can I bring that in and usually there's both like it's very rarely that we're only in our stuff from the past or we're only in the present right it's some you know amalgamation of both so what's present here and what could be from the past and if I was to like take that younger self and wrap them up in a blanket and reassure them that Everything's gonna be okay. How would I interact differently with my partner right now? Mm. Yeah. What would so I do differently? I yeah. love that.
2: That lends itself to parts work pretty well. well yeah, IFS. Too.
1: And Ooh. self self-compassion it goes mm-hmm. so far for people. Wow. Yeah, it
0: regulates. It regulates. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Which is the core of attachment theory. Attachment theory is a theory on human brain development through the lens of co-regulation. How does my how do we develop through regulation? Right? So we're whatever regulates. Beautifully said. Oh, I so love good.
1: That. Um, tell us about your book.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the book is called Securely Attached, How to Transform Your Attachment Patterns into Loving, Lasting, Romantic Relationships. It's a mouthful. Yes. But, but it's what people need. Yeah, <laughs> I, I made it a workbook because there are books out there that talk about attachment and kind of give you pictures, but I didn't feel like there's anything that was like, hey, here are the questions you need to be asking yourself.
1: Here the work. Yeah.
0: And so the first... Um, section of the book is is a lot of reflection on your childhood and i go through and help you understand how you know what pattern your parent had and what you developed in response and what happened in this arena or in this thing how did your particular siblings affect your attachment you know what cultural identity so it's basically a reflection process on your childhood so that you can begin to acknowledge and feel some of the grief around those things Mm -hmm. The second section is a reflection on how those experiences got plugged into your pattern in adulthood so okay this is what happened to me when i was a kid now what did i do with it okay so it's helping you think through your adult romantic relationships and close friendships and how they affected your attachment because we can actually heal in those relationships like we talked about we can also get injured okay. so we may have had like a fairly secure experience in childhood but we got into adulthood and we had a really abusive experience and mm. it shifted some of our patterns. So it's right. helping you muscle some of that. Okay, And then the third section of the book, I lay out, these are the traits of secure attachment. So these are the things that you need to be working towards in your relationships, being generous, being trustworthy, being trusting, yeah. being honest and open, right? Mm. Um, reaching actively, um, not waiting for somebody to notice what you need in order to feel valid that you have a need, just mm-hmm. saying to so, so, so I kind of like, hey, ha- let's evaluate who you are. Let's evaluate how that's played out. And then let's turn that that ship around so that you can move into a more secure pattern now.
2: Yeah. Wow.
0: I love that
2: format. Is it something that um, people would just primarily do on their own or could they do it in a small group or even in therapy? What's your recommendation okay. for use? Yeah.
0: So I write this out in the beginning. So there's like, people will get reminded, but I primarily, like I said, what is broken in relationship heals in relationship. So it is the best thing possible that you work through this with someone else. And that might just mean you're working through it, but you have a mentor that you meet for coffee and you just read through it with them and share what you're learning. That could be that you and your therapist are like, hey, we're going to go through this this little section this week. And that's what we're going to work on together. Like it's a great book for therapists, by the way. So if you're a therapist and you're like, Mm -hmm. well this person's got attachment issues what do I do I'm like go buy my book and literally just go through it with them great yeah Um, Yeah. and then I would say like groups because I don't know about you all but I guess the other piece I should mention is I did mention this but in my 20s I had a group of really wonderful attentive attuned girlfriends Mm -hmm. and we healed each other also like Mm -hmm. we showed up when that Dude broke up with them right after the third date from whatever <laughs> online service we were. It wasn't cool, <laughs> was like, no. um, but like we took care of each other, and so like in yeah. we we basically did what this workbook does for each other at that stage of our life. We sat mm-hmm. around and talked about our childhoods and what so we valuable,
2: through. yeah. And most people so, don't have that solid group of friends where they're right. vulnerable.
0: Yes. Which is also why I wrote the book is I was like, there needs to be a resource. Not everybody can afford therapy. Not everybody yeah. has community. So there needs to be something that can start that process. And it will also help you identify. So when you go into that third section, you're like, oh, this is what I should expect from somebody in a relationship. So this is how I can find secure friends and secure partners. Nice. So be on the lookout um, and know what it looks like.
1: So awesome. Well, go buy the book.
0: Yeah. Where can people find it? So it's basically available everywhere, but Good. I know you're going to the link in your notes. Um, yep. It's on Amazon all over the world, um, but it's on like Powell's and Bookless and nice. it's through Penguin Random House. So if you Perfect. Google really attached, the, the link to Penguin will come up and the link to Amazon Rock will come on. up. And go either way. Great. Well, so we will good. link
2: it in the show notes so folks can click on it there as well. All, all right. right. We're going to close out this episode the way we close out all of our episodes. And that's by asking you this question. Rewind back to your first couple years of marriage. What mm-hmm. advice do you wish you would have received and fill in the blank, dear young married couple?
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to go rogue and I'm going to tell you advice I did receive. Okay. Okay. I love it. it so good. We actually at our wedding, We had a box that was marriage advice. We were just like, leave us some advice, go for it. Like somebody knows something. And someone wrote, marriage is never 50-50. It is 90-10 and you just take turns. (laughs) And I love that because we've got through where I've needed more and he's needed more. Uh, And I think that's true. It's like, yeah. True story. So yeah. <laughs>
1: Very rarely, if yeah. ever. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's not a real thing. That's real thing.
2: so
1: true. I love that wow. advice. Very good. Man, Eli, thank you so much for all the wisdom and uh knowledge that you brought today. It was so refreshing. It's fun and nerding fun. out with you. Yeah, super fun. <laughs> I
0: loved it. You all have such great energy. It's so good Aww. to be with you. Aww,
1: thank, thank you. you. You need more connection in your marriage.
2: So we created a free download for you called the top three ways to connect.
1: We created this after working with literally thousands of people just like you who said, I really crave a deeper and more meaningful bond with my spouse.
2: You can get this recipe for connection by following the link below. Also, if you want some more personalized help or counseling, just shoot us a text 916-678-1797.
1: You can also go to our website, dearyoungmarriedcouple.com for more info.
2: We'll see you next week.